Before we read uh, the passage this morning, I want to share with you about a, um, a movie, a little bit about a movie that it's really old, so there's going to be a few spoilers. If you hadn't seen it, I'm sorry, it's way, it's way too late. Uh, the movie's called Castaway, stars Tom Hanks. There he is. And uh, in this movie, Tom Hanks, he's a, he's a FedEx pilot, and he ends up marooned on an island. And um, when he's on this island, he, uh, he has a few things with him that survived the crash, some packages and like a locket that has a picture of his wife in it. And he also finds um, this volleyball, don't show it yet, um, and he's there by himself, and he ends up naming this volleyball. He names it Wilson. You can go ahead, you can put Wilson up there. And uh, Wilson is Tom Hanks' best friend on the island, and also his most treasured possession on, on the island. And uh, something happened in this movie that maybe only Tom Hanks and a few others could, could cause to happen. And that is that, um, I, I don't think I'm the only one. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie. Okay, whoa, all right, almost everybody. Yeah, Tom Hanks, he's a, he's a big bill guy. Um, so there's a scene, there's actually two scenes where, where Wilson almost gets lost and then he does get lost. Raise your hand if you cried when he lost Wilson. Man, I, I bawled like a baby. And, and this movie's kind of old. Um, so I had, to, I had to YouTube it to make sure I remembered it. And the comments are so funny. This is actually one of the only YouTube videos you could look at the comments and feel better afterwards. <laughs> and there were just all these people on there talking about how much they cried when, that, when, uh, when, when Tom Hanks lost that volleyball. And we could, we could all relate to him because we all treasure things. Um, as human beings, we have an amazing capacity to find care and concern for things. We all do it. It, it, it might be uh, some, some really obvious things like a car, you know, that you, you take care of and you meticulously scrub in between the upholstery with a toothbrush and you, you wax it and clean it and you do all this kind of stuff. Could be your house, uh, could be your phone, could be your boots. People at Christ City love boots. So could be could be your boots. So we, we we cherish and we treasure some of these material things. We also, as human beings, we treasure things in an interesting way that hold no value to anybody else. Like Wilson, the the volleyball. Nobody else would have been crying if, if they, they lost their, their volleyball um, in, at sea like, like Tom Hanks did because they didn't treasure it. So we treasure things like old photographs and um, maybe a, a note somebody gave us one time or, or a memory that we had uh, of, of a particular scenario, an old song that reminds us of something, a baseball cap that needed to be thrown away a long time ago, or a tattered up shirt. But we, we 
have this incredible capacity to attach our heart to things and to stuff, and of course to people. But Jesus, in this passage we're about to look at, he, he knows this, he understands us, he, he walked and lived as one of us, and he knows that, that as we've been talking about and uh, with the Hernandezes and with the pledge campaign and all these types of things that our heart and our treasure, they're linked, they're attached to each other. That, um, that Tom Hanks' character would be willing to risk his life for something that had absolutely no value to anybody else. And so Jesus is gonna take us through um, this, this passage of scripture here and explain to us um, the connection between these things and what it means to thrive in the kingdom of heaven with our heart and our treasure. So let's, uh, let's stand and read and then we'll pray together as we explore this passage. And, and the passage is in uh, chapter 6, verse 19, to the end of the chapter, verse 34. Uh, there's Bibles at the end of the rows if anybody uh, needs one, and if, if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can take that one. I'm going to hold this mic closer like I'm supposed to. That's better. You guys can probably hear me better now. So hear the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life span, span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord, I pray that um, as we look through this passage that we would 
be able to drop our defenses knowing that through and by your son Jesus Christ, we are found lovely and approved in your sight and that we could be curious about your desire for provision and for faith uh, in this life, what it means not simply just to call ourselves a Christian, but to be a disciple of Jesus. We pray that you would give us the supernatural ability to do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, Jesus, uh, he says a lot of intense things in this, in this passage, as if you've been with us for any length of time during the Sermon on the Mount, that's, that's kind of how Jesus is, you know. Uh, I guess when God comes to earth, he's, he's got a lot of really important things to say. Imagine that. So, um, in this passage, we're going we're gonna to kind of break it down into three categories, and you can see those on the screen. We're going we're gonna to talk about the choices that Jesus gives us. He gives us some treasure choices in the first part of the passage. And then he moves on to talking about anxiety and how our, our self-worth is tied to our anxiety that we have. And then lastly, he gives us an opportunity to think about how we should respond and what he thinks that response should be. So that's where we're headed uh, for the remainder of our, our time together. So let's go back to this first part of the passage here. Jesus says, he starts this passage with, do not. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. So he starts by telling us what not to do. And then he says, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where the moth and the rust and the thieves can't get at it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, as we've been going through this series, we've been talking about that Jesus isn't necessarily saying anything new. He's, he's simply trying to elevate the conversation and inspire our imaginations about what does it look like to follow and live in a way that is pleasing to God, and, and not just that in general, but this specific thing called the kingdom of heaven. And he would be saying things like, like the kingdom of heaven is among you, or blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And he's giving us this idea that the, that the kingdom of heaven is, sure, it's this thing that is coming, but in, but in so many ways, it's also here. And so, um, Offending our religious or Christian sensibilities, how we would like something like this to be laid out, Jesus just starts with the commands of what we should and shouldn't do. So don't store up your treasures on earth, store them up in heaven. And, and this is not a new thing. If we, we could look anywhere in the Bible, you could probably just 
close your eyes and flip some pages in the Bible and put your finger down, and you're going to hear something about this idea of where you store your treasure, of how you live your life in these two different ways. And that's really what this whole part of this passage uh, for these next several verses is about. Jesus is laying out two different ways of living your life that have two different results. One is a way where everything just dissipates. Your decisions in your life, they matter only for a fleeting moment. The other way, your decisions have these huge, monumental, eternal significance to them. Not that those decisions seem huge in the moment, but that's the type of significance that they have. So I just wanna, I wanna give you a few scriptures to show just how common this is. It's just flipping through my Bible, just grabbing a few scriptures. Here's a New Testament one from Paul. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Or let's, let's flip back to the Old Testament, a prophet, Amos. He says, judgment comes on Israel because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Or the philosopher in Ecclesiastes, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Um, tell you the truth, I thought I was looking forward to preaching this passage, but I'm, I'm really not. I really wasn't as I got closer and closer to it because we live in America. And there are one point four billion people in the world that are living in extreme poverty right now at this moment. And we ain't it. That ain't anybody in this room. And so when we hear uh, these, these commands from scripture or these, even these um, sort of wonderings from scripture, like in Ecclesiastes, uh, it applies to us. It applies to me uh, that right now, I don't think any of us in this room would be able to say, yeah, I'm not storing up treasure on earth. And we see all of these warnings for what that looks like. And what that means, one of the things that that means right now is that we're missing out on something with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We're missing out on something because we are going against in some way what Jesus is telling us about storing up where we store our treasures. Now, it's a really abstract thing to say, uh, storing treasures in heaven. Like, what does that even mean? We're going to get to that point. I just want to finish talking about this section about what, what is Jesus saying here, and then we'll kind of expound upon what does he actually mean by all these metaphors that he's using. As we go through them, one sort of will explain the other in a way. So, 
Obviously, you buy a car, you buy a house, it's not gonna last. You buy clothes, it's gonna wear out. All those types of things. So we got that much, right? We understand that, but we still do it. We still spend a lot of time and money on those things. So here's the next thing that, that, that Jesus hits us with related to all uh, these ideas about where we're storing and laying treasure. It says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So your, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Why is he talking about eyes right now? You know, that's, that's, what, that's what I'm thinking when I'm reading this passage. Like, what is this? What is it? Why, why? Jesus takes a sharp left turn right here. He's talking about eyes all of a sudden. But this is something we might call like a, a Hebraism. Can you say that with me? Say Hebraism. Hebraism. So like another example of that is when, when Jesus says, you, you have to hate your family to follow after me. That's, that's another example of a Hebraism. You must love this and hate this. Usually that just means like, you prefer this over this. Like when we say we have all these idioms and things like that, like we say, man, it was like raining cats and dogs out there. We don't really mean that literally. It's an example of this. So when we look at this, this part of this passage here, what Jesus is actually getting at here is this, it's this really clever little metaphor that exists in rabbinical teaching. So Jesus was a rabbi, and this was a common way of relating this idea of generosity. This passage is actually about generosity. So when he says, um, when he talks about uh, the eye is healthy, that word healthy in the Greek it means haplos, or, or it's translated from a Greek word called haplos, which means literally clear, but often it's used to describe generosity. So an example, in James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives gener generously to all without reproach. So when it says God who gives generously, that word is actually clear. It's the same word clear. So a clear eye, a generous eye. And likewise, the bad eye or the evil eye, where there is no light, um, is actually means stingy in, these, in this sort of Hebraism way. So Proverbs 28, 22 is an example. It says, a stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Literally, that word stingy is an evil or a bad eye. So this is really interesting because what Jesus is, is saying here, he's using this really interesting metaphor by saying, if, if your eye is clear, light comes in your body. It, it lights up your soul. It lights up every part of you clearly. And that, that idea, what a good eye is, is a generous eye. It's an open-handedness with what you have. And, and a bad eye, that there's darkness and how great that darkness is within you is this idea of stinginess or, or grasping and holding tightly to the things that we have in life. And so he's contrasting somebody with bad vision who is not generous and somebody with good vision who's really generous. All right? I want to keep going here. Next, next part of the passage. He then gives this dichotomy between two different masters. 
No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So three things going on here. First, two different places to store treasure, storing treasure on earth or storing it in heaven. Then the difference between a generous eye, a giving eye, a giving person, a giving spirit whose soul inner being is lit up with generosity versus a stingy, grasping, anxious person. And then lastly, he makes a, his point even further clear with uh, this comparison of a servant having two different masters. It's kind of like, let's say, my one master was on this side and my other master was over here and he's, he's calling me and asking me to do something. I'm running over there and I'm trying to do what he's asking and then the other master is over here asking me to do something and I'm running all the way back over here. After a little bit of time, you just really can't do that anymore. It just really won't work. The demands of your master are going to be more than you can just switch back and forth. That's what God is saying here. That's what Jesus is saying about God and money, that in, in the same amount of ourselves that God requires, so the service to money or mammon, uh, which was almost like a personification of, of, of the idea of money and wealth, asks of us. So when I, when I read these passages, uh, I, get, I get convicted. I get convicted about how how, how maybe I'm trying sometimes to teeter between these two things and, and trying to serve these two masters. And, and I think, well, how, how, how can you do this? How, how can you actually live this type of life that, that Jesus is asking? It it's almost seems impossible. But I, I don't think he's asking something of us that's impossible. And knowing our... Uh, knowing our thoughts and our hearts so well as Jesus does, he leads us into this second part of the passage. He knows it's difficult. It's particularly difficult right now in this society for us. I want to share this quote from this sociologist about the effects of advertising on our psyches, on our, on our minds and our hearts from this guy, uh, Bernard McGrain. And I think we have the, the quote on the, on the screen as well. It says, one of the subtexts of all of advertising is, you're not okay the way you are. Things are bad. You need help. You need salvation. In that sense, advertising is designed to generate endless self-criticism, all sorts of anxieties, and then to offer the entire world of consumer goods as your salvation. In contrast, one message you'll never hear in advertising is, you're okay, you don't need anything, just be yourself. I think why we wrestle so much with this first part, or at least I know that I do, is because of that, because of that narrative. When I, when I, see, when I see that piece of clothing, or I imagine that riding in that, in that whip, man, that car, I think, I need that. I need that to be whole. I need that to be complete. I need that 
to fit in. I need that because there's this deep longing in my soul. There's this fear that I have that what I have is somehow not enough. I need this one other thing, just this one next thing, and then, then I'll feel that way until you get that one thing and it doesn't work. You find that one thing. And I know this conversation can be broader. It can be broader. It's not just about uh, money and possessions and things like that. That exists too, but that's not what Jesus is focusing on in this passage. So we're going to keep it in the confines that he has it in here. I'm talking about stuff. I'm talking about your bank account. I'm talking about how you make decisions about what kind of job you want to do because of the salary attached to it. And I know we got a lot of young people in this church, and some of you might be thinking, well, I don't live that way. I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm working at a nonprofit, and I'm doing this, that, and the other. Well, wait till you get older. Ask some of these folks are a little bit older, and you start having kids, and those kids start getting ready to go to school, and you're thinking, where am I going to send these dudes to school? And what are, what are they going to, are they going to have everything they need and private tutors and all this? You just, just wait a few years. If you haven't dealt with these things before that, you're going to deal with it then. And you probably won't be ready for it. Because this whole mechanism we got going here in America, it serves mammon. That's what our money should say. It should say, mammon we trust. Because we're all about capitalism, we're all about the next biggest, best car, best house. Our whole culture is talking to us constantly about how we need these things in order to find our satisfaction in life. And as soon as we see that one thing that catches your eye in particular, you feel afraid. Because you don't have it. And you feel like you really need it. Jesus knows this about us. Long before cable television and YouTube videos with ads every two minutes and Facebook feeds that cater to every little uh, click, you've, every little ad you've ever clicked on. Man, I was reading a New York Times article the other day and it popped up an ad for Brilliant Earth, which is a company that I um, bought, designed, Becky, my wife's uh, engagement ring with. And we've been married for over six years. So that ad popped up from something that on a different computer six something years ago, I looked at and it's boom, right there. Like, oh, you still interested in a ring? You probably need one of these, right? I'm like, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. But hey, it happens. It happens in America. So. Jesus knows this about us. He knows we feel this anxiety, this fear about stuff. You know, he tells, a, he tells a parable of this guy, this farmer, and he had really good crops. And, and he thought, man, I got all these crops. My barn's not big enough. I'm gonna build a bigger barn. And then it happened again. Man, I got so many crops. I got to have a bigger barn for all my crops. And it just kept going and going. And you know what happened at the end of the story? The dude just dies with a giant big old barn full of all kind of great stuff. And he's just dead. You know, Job says it this way. He says, uh, where, where is my scripture from Job here? 
I don't have it on there. He says, naked, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked will I return. That's not going to be hard for Benjamin, my son, because he loves to be naked. I call him, call him nature boy all the time. He said, I'm not nature boy. I said, man, you back there riding your bike, butt naked, 68 degrees. You are definitely a nature boy. <clears throat> Speaking of, uh, of Benjamin, um, this, this next part of the passage, it, it, it reminds me of a situation with him. It, Jesus starts this next part of the passage and he says, uh, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And if we stop there, uh, then it would feel impossible to me. How am I supposed to not worry about those things? How are those things supposed to not be of concern to me in the point where I, I'm worried about it? Now, we're going we're gonna to split some hairs in a moment about the difference between worry and fear. But as of right now, I'm thinking, how am I supposed to do that? If I don't do it, who's going to do it for me? And I think about Benjamin right now. He, um, he's almost four. He turns four next month. And he slept, he slept through the night for like this brief window of time so far in his life. And, and the latest thing is he wakes up to go to the bathroom and he's scared of the dark. So he then comes into our room. And I travel a lot for work, and what I was doing at first is I was waking up, and I'm like, I'm going to get him to stay in his bed because I need to sleep, and Becky needs to sleep. But then when I would go out of town, he would be in the bed with Becky. Like, he'd wake up, and Becky would be like, I'm too tired, and I got Malia, my other daughter. And uh, so I thought, okay, I'm going to incentivize this situation for Benjamin. Benjamin loves cupcakes. And so I thought, hey, Benjamin, if you sleep through the night in your bed, I'm going to give you a cupcake the next day. I'm going to go out and get you a Muddy's cupcake, whatever kind you want, red velvet, you know, the, the, the Capone or whatever it is, you know, uh, I'm going to get that for you. And guess what? Y'all think it worked? Yeah. No, it didn't work at all. And here's why. Benjamin loves cupcakes but he was too scared of the dark for his love of cupcakes to override that fear. His fear was greater than a potential reward that he knew that, that he would enjoy. And I think that's oftentimes how we are with this, this passage here um, that is on anxiety. So let's, let's keep reading this passage. So he, so he says, don't worry about this stuff. And then he says, look at the birds. He said, they don't, they don't sow or reap. They don't put stuff in barns. And then he says, what about the wildflowers, the lilies of the field? He's talking about weeds. He says, look at how God clothes them. More beautiful than even Solomon in his splendor. Solomon, Old Testament king who had everything. The guy had everything. He also said it didn't satisfy you, you ever notice how it's the, it's the really rich people that say that? Like, oh, you don't want my problems. You, you don't want to have all this stuff. It doesn't satisfy. And be like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll let you know if I feel the same way when I get there, okay? But, but he says, look, look at those flowers. God clothed them. 
God cares for those birds. God cares for those beautiful flowers that bloom and then they die and then they're mowed up. And in ancient Palestine, they were used for fuel because they didn't have a lot of trees around. So that's what he means throwing into the, into the fire there. So Jesus anticipates how we're going to feel. And he says, I want to make something clear to you. I want to give you something greater than your fear. So here's what happens. We, we're afraid. We're afraid that we're not enough. We're afraid that we're alone. We're afraid that nobody is looking out for us. And that fear doesn't stay fear. It starts to turn into something called anxiety and a need to control. And so we think, if my barn full of stuff is big enough, I'll be all right. Because nobody else is looking out for me. Jesus knows this about us, and so he says, he does something here that is uh, an ancient rabbinical teaching, uh, and we would call it uh, heavy and light and heavy, this idea of, of making a light and a heavy contrast. So he says, uh, look at these birds. You see, God provides for the birds, right? That's easy enough for y'all to see, that God provides for the birds. And here's the heavy part, though, because we're thinking, well, does God love me? And he says, well, aren't you worth more than all these birds and some of these birds? How many birds are you worth? Think about it in your mind. And I want you to think about particular kinds, like parrots, uh, ravens. Look at your neighbor and say, you're worth a whole lot of birds. Look at your other neighbor and say, you're worth like 50 birds. Why don't y'all do it, Tom? <laughs> you, you think I don't see everybody out there? I know. I'm, I'm not asking you to do something difficult or embarrassing. You're, you're worth more than all the birds. Just you, Jeremy. You're worth more than all the birds in the world to God. Jesus knows we need that truth. This is something Drew was preaching about last week, that God sees you. He says, I see you, man. I take the time to make sure these birds got enough to eat. Do birds work? Yeah, they work. But do they worry? Are they anxious? Are they consumed with fail-safes and special programs and 401ks and three, four, five, six different bank accounts and backups to backup plans and basements full of guns, I don't know. <laughs> Any of that stuff. Birds don't got that stuff. Jesus knows we need to be able to understand this. And he says, if you want a really clear example, look at nature. He says, look at those flowers. You ever seen a field, an unkept field of wildflowers? that were just weeds. Like that's what we call them, we call them weeds. Because the only thing they ever get used for is like a cow to eat them or a guy to have a job doing landscaping on one of those big mowers. And Jesus says, pay attention to those. You see how beautiful they are? You can get dressed up, 
you could be in that new Cadillac SUV with those really skinny um, brake lights that are really cool, wearing, you know, the, the, the boots. <laughs> and you will not be nearly as attractive as those wildflowers. Because they, they're not worried. They're not worried about if they're enough. It's interesting because we, we have this incredible capacity as humans, like I said earlier, to treasure things. We also have this amazing responsibility to live up to how God created us, to live up to how we were initially designed and created to be. So when we talk about being more humane in world news, politics, situations, or this idea of, 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 of losing or gaining your humanity by things that happen. And so unlike the wildflowers, we have some choice in the matter. We have options. And as we begin to tie and weave these things together, we see that, that Jesus is saying, when you are able in some way to operate like these birds, like these wildflowers, that you can actually just be what I intended you to be. How did he intend us to be? How do we store up treasures in heaven? One of the things that he says in this passage is that, that good eye, that clear eye, that generosity, that as human beings, just like a wildflower was meant to bloom just because, just because, and birds were meant to fly around and eat worms and make nests, you were made to live an open and generous and clear and honest life, that when you do that, you are simply doing what that wildflower does. You are doing exactly what God made you to do. It, it, it's, it's, such a, it's such a paradox. We spend all this time thinking we've got to add all these things to ourselves and hoard all this stuff up and try to control what everybody thinks about us and manage our images on social media and through the particular type of glasses that we buy and the way we turn our collar and the boots that we wear. And Jesus says, when you are giving, when you are generous, when you are able to understand that your worth, your value, you shine the brightest when you're able to give of yourself, when you're able to be generous with everything that you have. And That takes a lot of faith, because that's really scary. I'm an artist, I'm a painter, and sometimes I venture outside of that as well, outside of painting into sculpture and performance art and other things like that. But um, I uh, heard this guy named Austin Cleon speak several years ago, and, and he talked about 
artists' relationship to their, their content, what they produce and what they make, and this idea of sharing those things for the world and the importance of how social media allows artists to share things. And he says that he comes across lots of artists who are really scared to share their processes because they're afraid that somebody will copy them. And he said what he has found is that the most generous artists, they just get more work and they get uh, more people interested in what they're doing and they get passed around more on social media and they become more successful when they share. And the reason why we don't is because we're scared. We're scared that no, there's not enough. There's not enough for everybody. And so I gotta get mine. I gotta make sure that I get mine. A couple years ago, when I was able to start making more art, I was sharing everything that I did. And there were times when I have had this impulse to hold it in close, like, no, this process, I wanna keep it to myself. Somebody will take it. Somebody will be more successful than me using that because they're more talented at the art making, but they're not as talented as coming up at the work, so they're gonna take my stuff. But there was, there was several moments, not just one, several moments where my fear, I allowed it to become faith. I allowed it to put it out there and believe that there was enough, that there was enough for every single person, that God made this world a bountiful, beautiful place. He said, be fruitful and multiply, each by their own kind. Go, do it everywhere, explode. He didn't say, be careful now. Be careful, because I didn't quite make enough for everybody, so you better be very measured and calculated in everything that you give and receive to one another. He said, be generous, create, explore. Because of our sin and other sins, we are scared, and we hold back into control. And we sing about trusting Jesus, and we sing about the kingdom of heaven, and we profess things with our mouths, but you know what actually shows us what we believe? It's not what we say. It's not where we go on Sunday mornings. It's not amount of scripture or secret passwords or handshakes that we know in Christian religiosity. It's our actions. Dallas Willard, he says it this way, concerning belief. He says, we often speak of people not living up to their faith, but the case in which they say this are not really cases of people behaving otherwise than they believe. There are cases in which genuine beliefs are made obvious by what people do. We always live up to our beliefs or down to them, as the case may be. Nothing else is possible. It is the nature of belief. Jesus knows that. And so he, he tries to point us back to how much we're worth in hopes that eventually we'll believe it. This isn't a one-time thing. This isn't, now I believe it and I've got it. This is a back and forth wrestling through our whole lives 
of belief and doubt, of fear and anxiety, and Jesus is walking with us through that. If you want to walk with him through that, he will go with you. You can stay holed up and try to do it on your own, or you can walk out into this kingdom that Jesus is saying, it's, it's here, it's coming, and it's here. He says, as we continue in the passage and we get to our closing, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows. And then he says in verse 3, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That is hard to believe. It's hard to believe that if we're generous, I'm not saying like unwise, like I've got a lot of debt. Oh, and Jesus said, if I seek first the kingdom, then uh, all these things will be added to me. So I'm way in debt, but I'm going to go out and be generous and like buy a bunch of people dinner. And then Jesus will add all the stuff to me and erase all my debt. I'm not saying that. But I am saying Jesus is calling us to give till it hurts. We talk a lot about passion here at church, and, and passion is, is being willing to go through pain for something greater than that pain. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is worth that. It's worth the pain that comes of letting go of that control. Oh, it hurts so bad to let go of that control sometimes and say, you know what? We're going to sit down, we're going to look at this budget, and we don't need this much stuff. It's going to go into a different way of spending our money. It's going to go into donating to nonprofits and missionaries and charities. It's going to go into buying ethically made clothing or banking at a minority bank or any number of a million creative ways people have come up with to be generous with what we have. If we were to do that, if, if this church were to do that, I'm, I'm happy about this giving campaign and, it, and it, it affects me, but man, if we were to become generous in all aspects of our lives, imagine, imagine if, if, if everybody in the city of Memphis that went to church was generous to a homeless person. They'd be done by 9 a.m. every day. They, they'd come home, well, they're homeless, they don't have a home, but they would walk away with so much stuff, they could restart their whole life by 9 a.m. in one day. If we were as generous as the scriptures talk about us being, if we were blooming like those wildflowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, but our actions, what we do as we live out our yes being our yes and our no being no and our prayer life and and uh, how we battle and fight against lust and anger and all of these things in the Sermon on the Mount, those have eternal significance. In your bulletin, there's a quote. It's Thomas Merton. He says, every moment and every event of every man's life on earth plants something in his soul. I think that's a lot of what Jesus is talking about here. When we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things that he's saying are added to us, they, 
they look different than the world. They truly look different. I'm on that journey. I want to be on that journey with all of you. Jesus is inspiring us. He's elevating this conversation. It's our job, it's our job to act. It's our job to act, to, to, to create, to create banks of blessing or kingdom 401ks or salvific spending or eternal investments. Divine Dow Jones. That's what the disciples of Christ, that's what we as a church are, are called to do, not by me or anybody else other than Jesus. And if we wonder, is this life really possible? I could, I could share with you a number of saints uh, over the, the centuries, over the, the, the millennia, But I'll just close with, with this quote from the theologian N.T. Wright. As long as I have that quote. I gave that quote to you guys, right? Yeah. I'll just read it up here. N.T. Wright notes, when Jesus urged his followers not to worry about tomorrow, we must assume he led them by example. If we ask, can anyone really trust God in this way? We can answer that at least one person did. The guy who said it. Let's take these. Uh, let's take these things before God as we consider storing up treasure in heaven, living with a generous life.